Reimagining Route 66. Co-ops collaborate with EV charging to reinvigorate rural America. Welcome to PowerPlays, a CoBank Knowledge Exchange podcast series, an audio program where we connect you with top energy and environmental innovators and policymakers who share their insights, experience, and market observations. Hello, I'm Terry Vishwanath, the lead economist for Power, Energy, and Water at CoBank. I'm joined today by co-host and CoBank Managing Director, Tamara Reynolds. Hi, Tamara. Hey, Terry. In our nod toward the upcoming NRECA annual Power Exchange and Tech Advantage conferences in Nashville, we wanted to lean into a topic that's going to receive special attention at the conference, and that is the rural adoption of electric vehicles. Terry, I shared with you a great case study featured on our CoBank.com website that discusses how Tennessee is emerging as a major hub for electric vehicle manufacturing. Ford's recent announcement to build Blue Oval City in the state simply cements that position. I know that our electric co-ops in the volunteer state are also orchestrating their own major build-out, providing education and outreach in their communities to create a thriving ecosystem for electric vehicle adoption. And maybe more than this, as you will hear on this podcast, the time it takes for a fast charge might provide a great excuse to linger a little bit longer in our rural communities, inspiring our co-ops to rethink community planning. You know, I'm really proud of the work that Middle Tennessee Electric and others are doing in this space. If you think about it, in the early days of motoring, also at the start of modern American tourism, the first transportation revolution also encountered problems with refueling very similar to what we're experiencing today with EV recharging. Before thousands of gas stations dotted our public highways, motorists purchased gasoline from hardware stores, general stores, and even pharmacies. You see, these businesses had a pre-existing relationship with the refineries through the sale of kerosene, which was used for lighting. And there really feels like there's a parallel today with our electric cooperatives in their work with households and businesses in accommodating the nation's second transportation revolution. Before we gather in Nashville, we wanted to reflect on how the transition to electric vehicles takes more than just a dealership sale. It takes quite a bit of cooperation and collaboration along the whole supply chain. Drivers are into electric cars. Dealerships, convenience stores, home builders, electricians, and yes, even apple orchards and wineries need to prepare. The future of transportation is electric, and federal policies and cooperation amongst cooperatives can make EV charging more accessible. We start this podcast conversation on federal policy support with Brian Cavey, CoBank's Senior Vice President of Government Affairs. Here's that conversation. Brian, welcome to our Power Plays podcast program. It's great to have you on the program. Thanks, Terry and Tamara. It's great to join you today. Yeah, we're thrilled to be able to talk with you. Last year's passage of the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act supported a number of electric co-op priorities including rural broadband deployment, electric vehicle charging infrastructure, and clean energy and grid modernization. So today, we really wanted to focus attention on those first two, broadband service and EV charging infrastructure. Can you give us an overview for this investment? The long-awaited Infrastructure Investment Jobs Act delivered some good news and, candidly, about a trillion dollars to folks around the country. Now, some of that was simply reauthorization of existing programs, but there's also significant new investment, including the two areas that that you mentioned. Bill provides seven and a half billion for an EV charging network and somewhere in the neighborhood of 65 billion for broadband access and affordability programs. And that's real money for both of those. Um, Notably, the president established a task force 
with six federal department secretaries and a couple more cabinet level posts and chaired it with uh, New Orleans, former New Orleans Mayor Mitch Landrieu. So it's a diverse and, and high powered panel. And the task force should be helpful as they're trying to navigate when jurisdictional lines prevent obstacles to getting these programs up and running. Um, since the, the bill was enacted about two months ago, there's been important progress. But that said, I think it's important to recognize this is a marathon, not a sprint, as they try to invest those funds in, in uh, you know, a responsible and productive manner. For our co-op listeners, how can they influence their ability to access funding for their communities when it comes to rural broadband? I think the, the benefit of this bill is, is the money that's there is going to address that problem. The question is, how far will $65 billion go? I think uh, folks at electric co-ops can reach out to their uh, to their National Trade Association at NRECA, also their, their state uh, associations as well are actively engaged in this. Hopefully the, the federal investment that's going to be made through this bill will be uh, delivered in a way that enhances and improves rather than duplicates the work that's, that's underway in some of the states. I think you make a great point too, Brian. It's just, you know, it's it's how far can we stretch this dollar, right? We've got 30 million Americans that are living somewhere without adequate broadband access that is roughly 25% of, of the rural population. But the other element of this is not just access, it's affordability. So another really important element of the federal broadband investment is going to address affordability, right? Yes, one of the uh, one of the set asides in the broadband spending was over fourteen billion dollars set aside for the affordable connectivity program, and it built on, or is a long term replacement of the emergency broadband benefit that was started to help Americans during the COVID nineteen pandemic. Um, during the pandemic, there was a, a fifty dollar a month uh, per household program to help folks access the broadband that was essential for them to deliver education to their kids at home, to be able to work from home, to be able to receive uh, telemedicine services when they couldn't get in and, and get treatment. So it was really an important uh, an important program that, that was passed in the early days of, of the COVID relief packages. This program is, is long term and, and it's a little lower rate. It's at $30 per household per month, but still uh, helps out in making it affordable. I want to switch gears. The other important topic we want to talk about is that federal spending that's going to be focused on electric vehicle recharging infrastructure. Well, one of the highlights of, of the bill for folks that are, are supportive of, of EVs is that there is uh, $7.5 billion in the bill to help bring EV charging infrastructure to places that, that haven't been able to access it until now and that should help make it easier for for drivers in in uh, rural or, or marginalized communities to to make the switch to electric vehicles and uh, while that program is is funded at half what the original program or original proposal was the administration still has a goal of powering up half a million new charging stations and rural locations are specifically called out as a priority and i think if if the new electric pickups are to be rolled out successfully and, and make their way to rural locations as well, we're going to have to have that charging infrastructure. So this is an important, uh, an important provision that was included in that bill and, and should have meaningful impact on how we get that technology deployed. 
Brian, we really appreciate your insights. Thanks for being a part of our program. Tamara, Terry, thanks for the chance to join you today. I appreciate it. Are you interested in hearing how electric co-ops are supporting EV adoption in their communities? The conversations that are currently happening with community leaders, home builders, dealerships, and electricians? Well, stay tuned to the second half of this podcast where Tamara and I catch up with Nate Betcher. We'll be right back. With today's ever-changing energy landscape, co-ops are evaluating ways to manage cash while continuing to meet their members' evolving needs for affordable, clean electricity. This is why more and more co-ops are taking advantage of leasing for their equipment needs. From electric vehicles and EV chargers to solar and batteries, CoBank Farm Credit Leasing can meet your financing needs while allowing you to make the most of your cash on hand. Contact your CoBank Relationship Manager for more information and a free quote today. And welcome back. I think Brian provided great context on the federal policies that'll support increased funding for both rural broadband as well as electric vehicle charging. For the second half of our program, we catch up with Nate Betcher, CEO of Pierce Pepin Cooperative Services in Wisconsin, who also serves as president of Charge EV, a national electric vehicle charging brand powered by electric cooperatives. And I'm going to mention this. Nate is also the host of a community podcast program called Live Better. Nate, welcome to our program. Yeah, thanks for having me. Looking forward to our chat today. You know, Terry, I think this is the first time that we're actually interviewing another podcast host on our program. So let's let's begin our discussion briefly with a quick overview of Charge. Can you give us a little more background about the organization? I joined Pierce Pepin Cooperative Services back in October of 2019. And at the time, our board was looking for electric vehicle strategy. We're a pretty small co-op located in the upper Midwest in in Ellsworth, Wisconsin. And so as we got into kind of thinking about our strategy relative to electric vehicles, we realized that we really didn't have uh, a person, a single person in our office that could could focus all of their attention and all of their energy on electric vehicles. As luck would have it, uh, we went down to a a manager's meeting down at Darylin Power Cooperative, who's our GNT. And uh, they had been talking about what uh, the group should do uh, relative to electric vehicle charging. And so um, out of that came a uh, working group. And so what we found during that uh, in that working group is that really all of the cooperatives that were part of Dairyland were, were thinking about electric vehicles. A good portion of them were thinking about it and, and all kind of struggling on, on how to get uh uh, their program going. And so it really gave us a, a great opportunity to sort of um, come together uh, and, and to think about how we might collectively create uh, something like charge uh, that could be utilized and, and could expand it across all of the, the upper Midwest. And, and frankly, what's really turned into sort of a nationwide program. We started out with really kind of 31 uh, distribution co-ops uh, that were, were sort of part of the initial group. And uh, over the last year, we've actually now expanded to uh, just around 70 co-ops that have uh, been a part of Charge. And, and what's even more impressive is uh, that we've had, um, we've had interest all over the country. You mentioned that there were a number of reasons that you guys collectively, that working group, uh, wanted to really take advantage of by creating Charge. Can you talk a little bit about what those are and, and what you guys found were valuable for collaborating in this way? At the time, you know, everyone was really focused on range anxiety, right? You know, co-ops are in rural areas and 
are people going to adopt electric vehicles without uh, public charging and, and, and feel comfortable that they can uh, leave their homes with an electric vehicle and, and go to, to wherever they, they may want to go? About 80% of the charging that people do is going to actually be done uh, inside of their home. And so that gave us kind of an opportunity uh, to, to start to think about, well, if most of the charging is going to be done inside their home, and then when people leave to charge, they're probably actually going to leave uh, the service area, their, their co-op service area, uh, before they need an additional uh, charge. We really needed to think about a brand, a, a brand that would unify uh, electric co-ops because if I have a member that's leaving and they're going to leave our service area and they're going to go to another part of Wisconsin or Minnesota or Iowa, we wanted them to be able to make that connection to another electric co-op. The other thing that really became top of mind was uh, the expanded need for, for education. So we knew that we were going to have to do a lot of education uh, just with our, with our members and, and with uh, those individuals that were going to be driving electric vehicles. But we started to, to realize that there was a broader audience. Uh, a lot of the dealerships uh, still even to this day are very uncomfortable with electric vehicles and they're really uncomfortable with uh, charging at home and what that's going to mean. And the other thing is uh, home builders and, and electricians. Uh, we wanted to try to do our, our best to get out in front of, of builders and electricians so that they were thinking ahead about wiring and pre-wiring homes for electric vehicle chargers. And then the last thing that I would just point out is, you know, we really saw uh, public charging uh, as sort of a, a billboard or an advertisement for uh, uh, tourism and, and economic development. And so just trying to educate uh, those entities why having public charging uh, at their facilities would encourage people to come from outside of our area uh, to patronize uh, that business or, or that tourist uh, destination. Something you mentioned, I thought it was a bit surprising, happened to be, you know, it really takes a full ecosystem push to be able to have this technology change. Yeah, absolutely. People are kind of not uh, thinking about uh, a home that, that has to be connected with uh, an electric vehicle charger. In fact, um, we have a uh, cooperative, uh, Eau Claire Energy Cooperative, that's part of Charge, uh, that is working on a uh, planned subdivision where every home in that subdivision will have an electric vehicle charger installed in the home. So regardless of whether the, the people that end up buying those homes uh, have an electric vehicle, their their home will come equipped uh, with a charger. And, you know, that's the sort of uh, effort that I think it's going to take uh, to really uh, get adoption at a, at a higher level. And, um, you know, just little things like, like sitting down with that home builder or with those electricians and having that conversation will go a, a very long way uh, in starting the uh, EV movement uh, across rural America. Instead of having to retrofit, have the conversation up front. The model even for a, for a convenience store or a gas station is going to have to change. It's going to take a little bit longer, more than likely, to uh, power your vehicle to an appropriate level. And so what are the sorts of things that uh, those convenience stores are going to have to start thinking about doing to uh, keep people's attention? You know, um, as a good example, uh, they're probably going to have to invest in some pretty good Wi-Fi so that people can uh, charge their vehicle, um, you know, check their email, uh, you know, maybe download a movie or, or whatever it might be. Um, it's just it's going to be a, a whole rethinking of the model, uh, if you will, that um, that 
they're probably not thinking about today, uh, but that charge is helping uh, those uh, business owners to to think about and to, and to prepare for the future. Legislation was passed to spend up to $7.5 billion in federal infrastructure funds to build out nationwide EV charging networks. Um, you know, and I think initially the plan was to put, you know, 500,000 charging stations across the country, which, um, you know, far eclipses the number of gas stations we have. Um, what what are you guys doing at Charge? What steps are you guys taking to take advantage of, of funding that's that may be available? Yeah, your, your question's a really good question. And, and I think one of the, the big issues that uh, we sort of uh, tend to, to forget about, and I think your, your numbers spell this out, um, you, know, you go back to, you know, if people are going to be doing 80% of the charging at home, you know, are we going to need the same amount of public places to be able to uh, charge electric vehicles? When you can drive home every night and basically, you know, quote unquote, fill your tank, you know, that, that sort of changes uh, the mentality for a lot of people. That whole mindset is really going to uh, change, I think, quite, quite dramatically. I think one of the advantages that, that we have uh, with Charge as, as a group and, and now covering uh, a number of, of different states is uh, we, can, we can bring more of a collective presence uh, to those grant opportunities. And, you know, when we can bring, you know, 70 different co-ops to the table and say, Hey, there's an opportunity here to build out a network to 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 take the infrastructure funds and to actually put it in places that are are going to need uh, that assistance. Uh, there's a lot of power behind that, and and we think that uh, charge. It's one of the reasons that we set up the group uh, uh, to begin with was was to give us a more collective voice, if you will, uh, related to electric vehicle charging. Yeah, Nate, you talked about Wi-Fi hotspots at. at- you know, charging stations. What are some other things that people can be thinking about when they're when they're thinking about placing a, a community EV charger? Or uh, you know, who you know, what what does it look like when you start to think about how that um, is supported by things like rural broadband? I really think that as electric cooperatives, who in many cases serve very rural areas, you know, it gives us sort of a, a chance to to kind of rethink. Uh, the infrastructure and where we may want to more strategically uh, put electric vehicle chargers. And I I mentioned a little bit earlier about uh, a tourism opportunity. We have about four or five different wineries uh, in our service area and our proximity uh, to the Twin Cities provides opportunities for people from the metro area to come out to the country, right, on a a fall weekend, uh, go apple picking and and, uh, and, and stop by our wineries and, and patronize those businesses. Uh, you, you mentioned also just the, the idea behind um, broadband and, and, and connectivity and the role that that's going to play as well. And I think one thing to, to keep in mind um, that we, we need to think a lot about is uh, the intelligence of the uh, charging infrastructure that we're putting out into the field. And when I talk about that, um, you know, even today in a, in a residential setting, um, it's really easy to, to go and get uh, what I would call a dumb charger, uh, basically one that just uh, plugs a vehicle in and, and, and provides the electricity. But as you start to think more and more about uh, intelligent charging where uh, you can control when that uh, charger is, is actually charging the vehicle and it can participate in a 
load management uh, program, we're going to want to know when people are connected uh, to that infrastructure. And we're going to want to know what the impact of that is to our grid and so that we continue to to keep uh, our grid resilient and, and reliable. And that's something that uh, we've been working on even with with charge. Uh, we've been working with our uh, legislators here in Wisconsin to make sure that they understand that the impact of public charging and that those entities have to work closely with the utilities so that we don't uh, harm the reliability of our, our grid. And there's a lot to do. Uh, there's a lot to think about. And, and I, I would just encourage all co-ops to, to start putting together a plan to, to start tackling some of these challenges. We had this conversation and you sent me this great link to the Live Better podcast program. And you had interviewed Brian Berg. Now he's, I think he's a director at your co-op for District 3, right? And he's also a former dairy farmer, now beef and crop farmer from River Falls. And he invested time to actually test a number of vehicles that provide insight to your to your members. Let's talk a little bit about, about your podcast program and that in particular uh, in terms of the EV driving experience that Brian had. If you met uh, Brian just, you know, kind of out on the street, um, you'd probably never think, you know, this is a guy that that's going to be really into renewable energy and, and electric vehicles. But uh, he's totally bought into it. Um, he's done a tremendous amount of research on his own. Uh, he's he's put in uh, his own residential solar that that actually powers uh, most of his consumption uh, at his home on an average basis. And uh, he's not the only uh, director, uh, frankly, that we have at Pierce Pepin. Uh, we have another director that's very similar, uh, has residential solar, uh, has a couple of Teslas, has an electric uh, bike, uh, which, which we had a chance to, to take for, for a little bit of a spin. And, um, and so it's great. And, and when, you can, when you can see that your directors are starting to use, and I'll call them technologies, but starting to use these technologies in their personal lives, uh, it really makes our job a lot easier at the co-op to uh, make uh, investments and, and, and plan for, uh, for this for our future. And, um, you know, I would just encourage, you know, anyone who's listening to this that uh, is working with their directors, you know, find out what their interest level is in some of this. And if they've never driven an electric vehicle, uh, get them in an electric vehicle uh, because taking them for a test drive uh, is a lot different than just talking about them in your boardroom. Nate, that's a really that's a really cool story, you know, and we really appreciate your your work around uh, what you do for Pierce Pepin and for Charge, but also for being in our program today. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah, and I, you know, I think we're we're just really passionate about this. Um, you know, this is really a great opportunity for electric co-ops to to be able to you know, take on uh, new sales and, and new load growth and, and do so in a way that, um, you know, is still very much environmentally friendly. It's, it's really going to be a, a win-win for, um, you know, for, for all of our members and, and really for all the co-ops across the country. That was a terrific overview of some of the great work that Charge is doing. The coalition is not only making a significant investment in more level two and level three chargers, but also creating important regionally connected corridors for recharging and building technology awareness with members and other critical stakeholders. 
Rural communities are home to 20% of Americans and almost 70% of America's road miles. So EVs can be especially attractive alternatives to conventional internal combustion vehicles. Increasing the availability of affordable public charging will help rural Americans, and really, as Nate suggests, anyone who drives in rural America. The confidence that they'll have to be able to recharge when and where they need to. I hope that our audience found this discussion helpful. For our next Power Plays episode, we'll be recording in Nashville at the CoBank booth, and we look forward to seeing you then. I hope you'll listen in over the next series of Power Play podcast, where we will dive deep into EV home integration systems, how many home appliances are becoming DERs by virtue of their behind-the-meter control features and functionality, and a toolkit for developing strong rural broadband programs. Stay tuned.